just when you thought that it couldn't get any worse with sequestration, oh, it's getting worse. It is now 10 days before sequestration goes into effect. At 431, we'll be talking to the Daily Caller's Matt Lewis. He's going to be joining us for our State of the Union recap. And then at 5 o'clock, we've got former congressman from Minnesota, Republican Mark Kennedy, talking about divisiveness in politics. And, of course, Chuck Hagel and the filibuster. It's a story that won't go away. Matt, tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics, with your moderator, Justin Russell. To join the political discussion today, you can call toll-free at 877-662-3713. And now, with the roundtable... Your moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday. That means it's another edition of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Blog Talk Radio's Backroom Politics Live. From Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the boy, former Vice President of Government Affairs for Burlington Northern Railroad. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al. Hello, hello. How you doing, Al? I'm doing good. Good to see you. To his left. He is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. I only have one complaint. Hello, What's everybody. That? What's I'm that? to the left of Al. Trust me. That doesn't work. Not a lot of people are. To my 12... To, my, to the right of Bob. <laughs> wow, it is bizarre world. To my 12 o'clock, he is the uh, former... Undersecretary of Commerce, who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington Insider, a very distinguished and factual fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello. I'm glad to bring some facts. Good. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to count on you. There is so much going on. Uh, just want to announce, as I uh, kind of tease it up in the first part of the show, uh, we've got uh, former Congressman Mark Kennedy from the great state of Minnesota. And now with George Washington University, he's going to be talking about political stability. At 4.30, uh, the Daily Caller's Matt Lewis is going to join us when we recap the State of the Union address. But first, let's get to the big news going on today. It is sequestration, sequestration, sequestration. Everything's going on with sequestration. The president held a, uh, a basically town hall presser with several public safety officials behind him and basically laid out that if we have sequestration, people are going to get hurt with no police, no firefighters. Thousands of public safety members going to be out of work as we go towards sequestration. A little bit of a scare tactic being put out there, Bob. Uh, is it effective, do you think? Is the president taking the right tack of saying, hey, your public safety is going to be in jeopardy if we go to sequestration? 
Well, I don't know if it's it's the best strategy. I think I would try to take a higher road and try to solve the problem. It would be nice to see him uh, have done something to get Congress together. Uh, I think the Congress has been in session for something like nine days in the last two months. Since January. they were all sworn, yeah, sworn in, in back in January. Yeah, once they, once they got their uh, their swearing in done and so they're on the payroll, they, each each party has gone off on, on uh, uh, you know, I would call them uh, hideouts where they have sat down and talked within themselves about how to set their policies up. Then they go on vacation. They're on vacation now. They'll get back next week. There will be about four days before sequestration. Uh, that seems like a relatively short time to get a problem solved, but I would not be surprised if something was not done. Congressman, now we're seeing a lot more rhetoric coming out of both sides uh, regarding sequestration. The rhetoric's getting thick here in this town. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? I don't know, but if the, if the trend line continues, the answer is yes. Uh, as far as whether the president is responsible for uh, bad tactics by calling in the uh, safety uh, people, the police and fire departments and so forth, I would say somebody better tell the people that those kinds of things can happen because I think the public is sitting out there thinking this is another ruse uh, in Washington, D.C., and nothing will happen. So Alan, I, I, I think he should tell them. Alan Moore, is it a ruse? I mean, it, I mean, we've seen, we've, got, we've been down this primrose path before where we've gotten up to T-minus one minute and all of a sudden deals get struck. But the rhetoric going around right now is there's not a deal to be had if you talk to both Democrats and Republicans. Well, you know, it, 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 it depends on what we mean by deal. A mega deal, a grand bargain that people sometimes have talked about, that will not happen in the next 10 days. Um, there are other things they can do, including well, let the sequester go into effect. And for odd reasons right now, that may that, that there, there are some Republicans and some Democrats who say, fine, do it. And they think in different ways that, that that will help them. Now, let's suppose that the sequester goes into effect uh, w without any change. All of a sudden, some of the, some of the, the, the things, that the, the horrors that people have talked about will start to creep in and, and occur. One can go and undo the sequestration if one wants to a week or two weeks or three weeks later. It's a horrible way to run a, run a, run a business or any other kind of enterprise, but... It's not like when it, if it goes into effect, you're over and done with. Having said that, there are other things you can do that that would modify sequestration. You could cut it in half, for example. So instead of well, having can, can they really cut it in of half? Of course they I can. Mean, they, the way they're talking right now, no, 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 just, that law is firm. No, <laughs> it's all everything is firm until it gets changed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they can change it. We kicked the debt limit down the the road a few months because people found it in their in their interest to do that. I'm just simply saying that you don't have to have a grand bargain to fix the sequester. You don't have to totally abandon the sequester and say, "Oh, never mind," because that would be a total sellout all the way around. Between those two, there's a lot of room. There's not a lot of movement. 
in the direction of finding some kind of compromise. I think if, if the president had summoned the congressional leadership back to Washington and spent a couple hours with them today, that would have been more effective than simply standing up, repeating himself, having some human props. I understood, but Congressman now, with, I mean, pretty much right now, both Democrats and Republicans have gone all in on sequestration. Everybody's blaming the other. They're calling it Obama-stration, Obama-sequestration. They're calling it all kinds of things. The Democrats are blaming the Republicans for actually invoking sequestration as a policy. Where's the truth in between? Well, first of all, the Republicans are always better at coming up with naming things and creating phrases and whatever than the Democrats are. So I'm, I'm not surprised that we come to Obama what administration. Anyway, uh, but what the Democrats are saying, I think, is, uh, is, is what's likely to happen. Uh, and I think that they're being more uh, candid with the public uh, than are the, the Republicans. My view is that you should not have sequestration and you should, everybody should do what they can to avoid it. Barring that, my view is they have sequestration and not a timid one. Lock everything down and let the public see what sequestration is. My fear, and then I, my fear is they'll do it halfway. They'll they'll close a park here and not close it there and you know and and, and, and again the public's going to say see they didn't mean it. Yeah, but Bob Hines, we're sitting here talking about you know kicking the can halfway. This is can this can be kicked anymore? Well, uh, it's broken pretty badly. The uh, label is gone. <laughs> it's bent in three places. But yeah, they can kick it again. I don't know that they will. And I think Alan is is probably where I think it's likely to be. I, don't, I think they're probably likely to be try to do something uh, that will be a partial. That's my guess. There's no way on God's earth that we're going to get a, a major uh, solution because it's, it's too hard to do, number one. Number two, uh, this, there's not the willpower to do it. So my guess is they'll do something uh, if they don't let it, it may very well be they won't even be able to do that, but I suspect they're going to try to do something to make it to, to get partially sequestered if there's some such a phrase as that. At the table right now with us is uh, former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, one time watching Insider Carl Tubin. Hey, Carl, um, four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, you had a, you, no, 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 it's okay. You, you had a comment. Yeah, my comment is I want to follow up on, on something that uh, Alan said, and that is I think when once sequestration goes through, once it hits, uh, all kinds of people are going to be hurt, and members of Congress throughout the country are going to hear. They're going to hear from uh, uh, people who've been laid off. They're going to hear from seniors who aren't getting their services, and they're going to hear from, from rank-and-file people. And I think that is something that is going to make them, if anything, that, that is something that's going to make them come to the table. Congressman Al. I kept saying that for the last year, that the, the Republicans can't really believe that they can behave in the way they're and expect to win the next election. You will remember I predicted that Obama would win about six months before the election. 
Uh, and it was based upon the fact that the Republicans were digging themselves a hell of a grave uh, and seemed to be blithely unaware of it. I would think that if they were to uh, force sequestration, they would simply continue with that policy. But, Alan Moore, is, is this a wake-up call that America really needs, that the fact that government is spending out of control, that many Republicans, particularly those aligned more with Tea Party, are saying that it's it's not a revenue generation, it's spend, spend, spend. Is this a wake-up call for America? Not yet. Um, America is not seems doesn't seem to be paying a whole lot of attention. Uh, stock market went up over fourteen thousand uh, today. The Dow. The Dow. Um, even business is not in some level of panic. It's very interesting. Um, it, it is not at all clear to me either that if sequestration goes into effect, that the negative impacts will be so big, so broad, so obvious. They may be, but it's not clear. I mean, we're 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 talking. Uh, uh, you know, five percent in domestic discretionary, seven percent in defense. Those are not small numbers, but it's very different than, for example, shutting down government, which back when Newt Gingrich was was uh, was the the, the uh, speaker, we did, and it and it and it worked against Republicans for years. But, uh, this one, but Alan, we're so clear. but Alan, we're talking about. If sequestration were to hit, you're talking about an impact just in Maryland of over 150,000 people affected. In Virginia, that number is double of people that will be affected by sequestration. That's a huge economic impact just around the national capital region. That doesn't even talk about other major defense areas such as Florida, California. Those areas are going to take a tremendous hit. Well. You know, you 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 read the stuff, including in the New York Times editorial page over the weekend, where they where they were broadcasting um, all of these big numbers, and they just added up what various federal agencies said without suggesting that if they were really faced with big cuts, what kind of creative response might they put together? And we're Bob and I are here saying, you know. We wouldn't be surprised if they scale back the size, right? But preserve something, right? And if you preserve something, it's still going to inflict change and some difficulty and pain. Bob Hines. Well, the government. This is not like uh, ninety-five, ninety-six, when, when in effect, the Congress closed down, uh, led by G Mr. Gingrich, the Speaker, closed down the government to stop the money. Right. This is not what's happening. This is not an earthquake. It's so much as it is a slow rolling thing. If nothing happened and sequestration hit 11 days from today, you wouldn't have the government closing down. You would have a slow rolling situation in agencies and departments all over the place where there would be some furloughs, there would be programs that would be stopped at the moment, stopped for a while. We won't spend anything on this because it's a research operation. We'll keep doing everything else we're doing, and it will continue, but it will continue to roll downhill. Just the immediate impact, Bob. You're talking about uh, 75,000 children that will go without pre-K. You're talking about uh, upwards of 1,500 Border Patrol agents that will be taken offline it's a public safety issue. You've got TSA, which is going to pretty much shut down air traffic as we know it, because we won't be able to get everybody through 
in time for these scheduled flights. Yes, but it's not the, all the all the border guards aren't going to disappear. All the pre-K kids aren't going to be out of money uh, programs. That's seventy-five thousand out of four hundred uh, thousand. I mean, the point is, it's going to be a rolling, slowly growing problem. It's not going to be a close down. But Congressman, now there are definitely some immediate impacts that are going to get Americans' attention. If you know they don't care about the other four hundred and fifty thousand kids that will have pre-K, if you're one of the seventy-five thousand, that means you got to stay home and watch your kid. That's an economic impact. That has a ripple effect. If I were a Republican, I would hope that Bob was right. And I'd be scared to death he's wrong. Uh, and I think I think rightly so. But in this, uh, Carl Tubin, you had a comment. We've already seen one uh, situation. Evidently, there was a, uh, a large uh, aircraft carrier that was going to be sent to uh, the Middle East. And they stopped it and said, can't send it to the Middle East because we don't know if we're going to have enough money to bring it back. Well, so they're already extending they're already extending one of the carrier groups out on right, station. Right. Yeah. There's no money to refit the carrier group with the proper supplies and the right. proper maintenance to get it out there and relieve the current carrier group. You're talking about a carrier group that's going to be out there for over a year right. almost. And that's, that's the kind of thing that, that's happening now, even before sequestration, in preparation for it. Sure. Now, with, with all the talk of sequestration, the two people that we're seeing getting a lot of face time in the media, at least here inside the Beltway, are uh, Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson, the infamous Simpson-Bowles deal. Simpson-Bowles took it upon themselves, not asked by anybody, but they put out a Simpson-Bowles 2.0. Alan, you're, oh, you're familiar with Simpson-Bowles 2.0. What, what's some of the highlights in it? Well, first, the first, <laughs> the first highlight is that, without saying so, they put a lie to the president's claim that everybody agrees we need four billion and we've done two and a half billion. That's a bogus claim. Um, and Simpson Bowles, in effect, that without calling out the president because they didn't have to, they said, "Well, we need, we believe, about 2.5, not the 1.5 that the president is saying is all we have to do." As if that's somehow easy with sequestration hanging. They want 2.5. They want about one fourth of that to come from tax reform and higher revenues that would come out of the tax reform. They want about a fourth of it to come from Medicare and Medicaid changes, and they want the other $1.2 trillion to come from defense and other discretionary programs and, uh, and, and changing the, uh, the, the, uh, the cost of living uh, measure for Social Security. That's over. But that, that covers some of the Republican spending issues. You've got a revenue generation. They're talking about a tax revenue increase of about 3.1% to every individual. No, no, no. Not, no, no. It, what, what they're talking about is, a, is, is an increase in revenue that would come from tax reform that would total about $600 billion. Now, most of that whenever you raise taxes, it comes mostly from the people who pay the most taxes. Um, and that's just how it works. If You only get taxes from people who have income. Um, and 47% of the people don't pay any income tax, and that's not going to start. That's not going to change with anything Simpson Bowles are talking about, except maybe in a few rare, odd cases. Um, but but uh, 
they're basically trying to say, okay, the Republicans in the House last year wanted to raise about $4 trillion in spending cuts that, were, that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And that the and the and the Democrats say we only need 1.5 trillion dollars, which is a bogus number, and so they kind of picked a number in between. But they also think that it would it, it's in the neighborhood of what the economy needs to provide some stability, and that it's doable. Bob Hines, just two quick points on that, um, and I agree with everything that Alan said about uh, Simpson Bowles too. I mean. It, It'd be nice if the president would pay attention three years ago, but he didn't. Anyway, when Mr. When the president and uh, Mr. Boehner were sitting down several years ago uh, trying to reach a grand bargain, Mr. Boehner was in, a, was in a position to offer upwards of $800 million um, in, um, in revenues, which would come out of uh, you know, cleaning up the tax bill. They, are not, they weren't talking about raising rates. They were talking about cleaning up the, the tax code. The fact that the uh, Simpson and Bowles, too, are looking at less than that indicates that it's quite doable to do that, number one. Number two, what's, what's unfortunate to see is that, that the president hasn't already glommed on to see, having made a mistake on not adopting Simpson Bowles 1 and might be a good idea for him to say something nice about Simpson Bowles 2. Congressman Al, I is, agree. Is Simpson Bowles 2 pretty much a flag to say, okay, you didn't take us seriously the first time, let's take a look at it again and let's put some serious movement on this? Well, I think that's probably what Simpson and Bowles have in mind. I have no idea what's going on in the White House or in the Speaker's offices on the Hill, whether they like it or not. It's from the outside, and uh, Congress likes things to come from the inside, uh, whether they're worth anything or not. Uh, I, I, would, I would really think that we would be missing a big, good bet for the second time if we utterly dismiss Simpson Bowles too. We don't examine it. We don't discuss it. We don't debate it. We don't see it. I think it's up to every member of Congress and both parties to say, if you don't like that, what do you want? Alan Moore, what do they want? They don't know. They, they, you know they're not united in any particular way. The, the House two years ago, or last year, passed a couple of bills that were, that, that were mostly spending cuts. And, and, and John Boehner has said, you know, we, we've, we've said what we want. Let the Senate move. Let them pass something, and we'll look at it. But, but don't look to us still again. We have spoken. Um, and, uh, and, and there's no easy pathway here, uh, and, and which is why I think it's not a matter of throwing some bill out before the Senate and see what happens. It's trying to get a small group of people in the room and say, what could we live with? What, how much do we need? How how far can we <laughs> kick this beat up can down the road? <laughs> it may be for six months. There is no can. There is no can that cannot be kicked down the road. Wow. It, now go ahead, Bob Hines. Well, just to pick up on what Alan said. In the Senate today, there are, uh, I guess, several groups of informal groups of senators, small groups, 
looking at numbers and looking at things that might fit if we could start cleaning up, cleaning this whole mess up. And I don't know where they are. I, I suspect the next well, day or two we will hear from some of that. That that set. Well, we've already heard from some. You know, it, it's funny because you know we talk about this being a partisan issue. There are several senators, namely Tom Coburn out of Oklahoma, who has actually gone on the record saying, "Look, I want." to be called by the president. I want the White House to call me. I want to sit down with a meeting, but the president isn't reaching out. Uh, is is that just the president holding firm, or is, in fact, the president just not that connected in to say, look, i got to get everybody on board with this? Bob Hines. Well, I mean, I, I don't know what the president is thinking. I, mean, I think he, if he doesn't participate more than he has in recent uh, weeks, it's 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 not going to be helpful. But there are so many. There, there. You know, Mark Warner and Colburn are just to name two guys who are. And there's four or five people working with them, all trying to find solutions. There's a whole lot of people trying to find solutions, but it does help if the if the president would get engaged. Congressman, now does it surprise you? that the president has not been engaged as he should be? Does it surprise you that he's not having them come down or him going to the Hill? After the way he was treated during his first term by the Republican Congress, in particular the House, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Whether it's a wise policy or not is, is open to debate, but no, it does not surprise me. And for Republicans to be suddenly surprised that he may not be, you know, all jolly about working with them is uh, hypocritical to me. Carl Tubin. You know, <clears throat> you just call you a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> point, of, point of order. Uh, I, I, we heard it. We'll get him on the off-air side. Carl Tubin. Several, 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 <laughs> several weeks ago, when uh, I think shortly after the president's inauguration, maybe before, he made the statement that uh, <laughs> the, you know, the girls... The girls don't need me as much anymore. They're out playing with their friends. Uh, and he said, I'm looking for someone to play cards with, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, <clears throat> the people he found, if he found anybody, are not on Capitol Hill. And that's the people he should go after. Uh, people like uh, uh, Coburn, who I think has, has worked with him before, and others, um, and, ha and share some of the same views. This isn't happening. On the other hand, <clears throat> every time uh, the Republicans put something in and, 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 and say, this is what we want, uh, or, or every time he says, this, this is something I want, they say no. And, and they keep saying no. Even if it's something they agreed with six months before, they say, no, that's not right. We don't want to do that. But Alan or Congressman Al, you got a comment on that? I, I just want to say I think there's one thing where I where I agree with my Republican friends here. Uh, I, I don't agree with them when they keep saying, "Well, it's all the president's fault," because I think that the Republican House is is, is spitting that soup a long time ago and for a long time. But the idea that the Senate hasn't taken any action is, I think, a legitimate question, and. In, 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 unfortunately, the United States takes three to bargain, and you only got two here, and they don't agree. So how how is that going to go with the thirds, you know, kind of standing out there, uh, throwing throwing 
chewing gum at, uh, at, at the others, but not doing anything. So I, I do think Alan and Bob uh, have a point when they talk about the other body. Call Tubin. Well, I think there's probably a white horse outside of the vice president's mansion, <clears throat> and at some point the president is probably going to say to the vice president, <clears throat> go talk to them, see what we can do, see if we can bring out something before sequestration. Very good. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we're we're going to have uh, our special guest from the Daily Caller on, and uh, you can call in with your questions for Matt at 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Highland Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
it one more once. Shelley's back room, 1331 S Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. You can join the conversation by calling 877-662-3713. Joining us now, he is the senior political contributor for The Daily Caller. He is Matt Lewis. Matt, how you doing? Hey, doing great. Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Matt, we're, we're going to jump in right now with our State of the Union recap uh we we've been talking off air about some of the big big ticket items that uh president obama put out there in the state of the union address what caught your eye initially uh with the president's state of the union last week well i saw the the best part rhetorically speaking was the end the gun control stuff and that was you know regardless of how you feel about the issue i mean it, it was definitely passionate and inspiring rhetoric um I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> and so really the whole speech to me was like Chinese food. It, it was excellent, uh, but I don't think it will be long remembered, and I don't really think anything's going to come of it. Um, the pre-K stuff, the gun control stuff, I, I just I think that it was a good moment for Obama, but I don't know that we're going to be looking back at, in history at the State of the Union. When, when we when we talk about gun control, I mean it was definitely an emotionally charged topic during his State of the Union. When he started calling out uh, the folks from Newtown, they deserve a vote. Gabby Giffords deserves a vote. The folks at Virginia Tech, they deserve a vote. Uh, did the president, do you think, knowingly putting that out there, realize that hey, this might be falling on at least Republican deaf ears? Oh, I think so. And I, I mean it was. It was just great cadence, and it was just it was great speech making. But I think the interesting thing isn't Republican deaf ears; it's Democratic deaf ears. It's when you look at Democrats running for re-election in the U.S. Senate in 2014, vulnerable Democrats in red states, and there are a lot of them <laughs> in places like you know Montana and uh, Arkansas and Louisiana. I don't think they think they don't want to vote. Um, so not only is it Republicans who I think uh, are going to be unlikely to, uh, you know, to sort of take this, this great speech and turn it into legislation, I don't think a lot of Democrats want to vote either. Congressman, Congressman Al. I think you have a point there. I have always argued that one of the things that, <clears throat> that reporters have not got right about uh, the NRA is they talk about all the money it spends and, and its huge lobbying effort, all, all of which is true. But <clears throat> that isn't who the Congress is afraid of. They're afraid of the NRA members who are extreme on this, who will come to their public meetings, usually armed, and scare the living daylights out of them. 
That is the real NRA hit, and uh, those senators know it. Uh, and I think uh, I think if it was just the NRA and what's his name, the head of it, Wayne Lapierre. Yeah, I, I I think there'd be a chance that they could pass legislation. It's the it's the uh, gun uh, owners, the extreme gun owners at home that that uh, are the are the problem. Matt, are you hearing the same thing? Well, I think that's true, and it reminds me of a few months ago there was this huge effort by the media to talk about Grover Norquist and how powerful Grover Norquist was. And we spent like a month, at least several weeks, where Grover Norquist was like the toast of the town, but he was he was demonized and he was celebrated and everything in between. And then um, it turned out that, you know, the Republicans voted. He said it was okay to vote for a tax, and they voted no anyway. And so, you know, it wasn't Grover Norquist and his pledge that that was causing Republican congressmen to vote no. It was that you know either they didn't believe in taxes themselves or they were, they were afraid of their constituents. Um, and I think this is similar. I think it's easy to you know sort of talk about the powerful NRA and Wayne Lapierre, and they're you know it's easy to write about them and talk about them and make them the focal point. But I think it's much more complex in the real world, and I do think it's, you know, rank-and-file NRA members, Second Amendment activists, whatever, vote just conservative voters um, in states, especially these states where, you know, some vulnerable Democratic senators are up in 2014 that are much more important than the NRA. Do you think that the showmanship that the, that the president put out there during the gun control discussion, it, was it enough to maybe – at least try to sway some of the more moderate Democrats, your Peter Kings, your Frank Lobiondos, that New England group? Well, I think that um, I think there are a couple things that happen with political rhetoric. One is actually trying to pass legislation today. And, you know, I guess it's possible they could get background checks. I don't think they're going to get anything else, but it's, it's, it's within the realm of possibility. But the other thing that Obama does with rhetoric, it's not just to pass legislation today. It's to change attitudes over time, and I think that in changing the culture, and I think that uh, that should not be discounted. It's entirely possible that nothing will happen with gun control this year, but because of these events and because of Obama's rhetorical leadership, that he could sort of win hearts and minds and over time change attitudes. Congressman Al. I think that's a very interesting point, and I wonder if there was any parallel with it with the civil rights program, where it started out with the South saying never, and it ended up with uh, overwhelming support, but it took 30 years to, 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 to do it. Or in the case of Mississippi, it took 150 years. Yes. <laughs> well, is Mississippi still on board? No, they, they just voted it in yesterday. Matt. <laughs> Matt, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, they were a little behind the times. Um, <laughs> no, I think that, you know, President Obama ran for office talking about wanting to change the trajectory of America like Ronald Reagan did. And so I think he's playing a long ball game here, and it's not just about guns. I think it's on a lot of issues where he sees himself as, a as an agent of change, and sometimes that change happens today. And sometimes he maybe plants the seeds for change. Um, 
Now, of course, conservatives are going to try to push back and, and, and you know, push for their own change and their own narratives. But, um, but I think that's kind of how he sees himself and, and sees the world. Alan Moore, I'm, intri- I'm, I'm intrigued with the notion that Obama is playing a long ball because the speech struck me as vintage Clinton um, uh, with a whole laundry list of small things. Gun control is, is, is unique because we're still in the throes of, of Newtown, but, but everything else in the speech um, was a bunch of small things, which I think he in some ways diminished by saying, um, and none of these will add a dime to the deficit, which of course is nonsense. Um, and then I think that, that in his comment about, about uh, we talked about this in the first half hour, that we've done a lot of the hard work on the $4 trillion that everybody says we need. Well, everybody doesn't agree, and most people believe that the 2.5 that he claims, at least half of that is bogus. But that's the big stuff. If he's going to play the long ball in this environment, in this economy, and given the stresses and income inequalities that are out there, he is playing small ball, it seems to me. Matt? Uh, well, I completely agree. I, I think that, you know, I was referring to the gun control stuff where I think he was very passionate and uh, really making a, an, an argument. Um, but I think on everything else, it was small ball. And I, I do say this, I wish that he had the same passion for entitlement reform and fixing this $16 trillion debt because that would be a tremendous legacy for President Obama and I wish he would use some of his rhetorical ability and persuasiveness to actually try to do something to, you know, put entitlements on sound footing. He completely ignored it. And, of course, all of these programs that he <laughs> that he proposed, this laundry list, would, of course, increase the deficit and the debt. And so um, while I do, you know, sort of applaud him for wanting to be a transform- transformational figure it may be that the you know the cause of his era of, of his you know his sort of purpose of this presidency is to rein in entitlement spending and he's completely AWOL on that Bob Hines Matt you know when you were you were talking earlier about um, about Ronald Reagan and and it struck me that's a very interesting uh, way to think about it because Reagan did a few things that were big and it was very very successful because of it. And the president, uh, and you have just mentioned what, what strikes me as the most important thing he could do is, is from a democratic standpoint, raise the issue of how to fix the entitlement programs to make them successful in the long run. And that's, that is the biggest, most important thing. And it's important to the Republicans and, and the Democrats alike. And it would just strike me that if he had not dealt with the uh, a dozen little small things as as Alan has said and and said let's really work on the entitlements he really would become uh, even if he didn't succeed completely he would change the agenda he would focus on things that have to be done long term and he probably would go down in history as a guy who was really doing something important and big and put his put his presidency on the line to do it, which is what it takes. Matt, how about that? He really didn't swing for the fences on this one. He had a great opportunity missed. 
Well, I mean, I think going back to his election, um, Obama actually had an opportunity to be a post-partisan president. Um, I think he could have really ended the conservative movement or in the Republican Party had he initially triangulated. Um, but he chose to be a politician and to pursue, you know, a liberal agenda in health care, which was obviously going to be a divisive issue. I mean, we saw what happened in the 90s with Hillary Care, and he was able to ram it through. So he did, I mean, you can't take that away from him, like it or not. Uh, he does have points on the board. I mean, he he pushed through this landmark, you know, health reform. Um, so that that you know, and he's a two-term president. So you know, that gives him a certain cachet. But I do agree that um, you know the, the 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 defining issue of his time. We may look back and say that the defining issue, the most important thing he had to do was to get our economic house in order and, you know, fix, uh, you know, do entitlement reform, do tax reform, and he failed to do it. And he's, and, and, and we, and it may be that history remembers him very unfond, uh, unkindly. Congress uh, for now. I, <clears throat> I find this interesting uh, <clears throat> to say that, that he didn't do anything. Didn't he talk about uh, immigration reform? Uh, that seems to me to be a major uh, issue in our country today. And and also, to bring out the fact that Republicans and Democrats are always going to disagree on what is important. So the, the Republicans here, to a man, said he didn't talk about anything important. Uh, the Democrats here to a man will say he did talk about important issues. Uh, so it, it, I, I just don't want to leave the listeners thinking that we all agree that he didn't talk about anything important. We just think that these guys didn't see. The <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what do you think? Um, well, okay, so immigration reform is important. Uh, I think everyone, well, not everyone, I, most, most people I think would agree. You've got 11 million you know, illegal immigrants in the country, you know, doing nothing seems to be unsustainable. Um, and so there's a chance, there's a chance that that could get passed. And, and I think if it gets, it, it will obviously have to pass in bipartisan fashion. A lot of people will try to take credit. A lot of people will probably get blamed uh, if it passes or not. And that would certainly be an accomplishment for Obama. And um, I think that goes on the scoreboard with, you know, passing health care reform, being a two-term president, and, and you know, passing comprehensive immigration reform. But I, I don't think that it is in the same league as doing um, what, what I think is the most important thing, which would be fundamental tax reform and entitlement reform. And um, I'm sure that it is a little bit of a Rorschach test. I mean, there's no doubt that, Republicans and Democrats would prioritize things differently, but with a $16 trillion debt, it's really hard to say that that's not the most important thing, and I just don't see how President Obama, for all of his charisma and and skill, has done anything to fix that. Well, you know, when we talk about swinging for the fences, one of the things that he did do economically was talk about raising the minimum wage up to $9. Uh, that got very lukewarm responses from
from even some in the Democratic Party. I had tweeted when he said that, that, you know, the city of Detroit's happy, but the U.S. Chamber isn't. Uh, was that a big swing for him? I don't think so. I think it was it was small ball, but I think it, I think it was it's popular. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you say in a State of the Union. It, it remind, does remind me of the sort of Clinton era laundry list, and I think it got applause and it was popular and it got people talking because I don't think he had brought it up since the 2008 campaign. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise, but I don't think there's any risk that it that it will actually happen anytime soon. And moreover, I think, and again, this this, this may be a sort of where you stand depends on where you sit thing, but um, my guess is that it would certainly not help our, you know, 8% unemployment rate and, and very likely might increase the unemployment rate. It seems like an odd choice for a president who is facing, you know, joblessness and, um, and high unemployment rates. Alan Moore. Yeah, I want to explore this notion of, of post-partisan um, presidencies because it seems to me that given his his very significant, uh, his very successful campaign, his big victory, um, that many people were hoping, I was certainly was, uh, for a less partisan presidency the second time around. And what we have seen in both his inaugural, his inaugural address and in the State of the Union is a whole undercurrent of continued political partisan thematics. That doesn't mean that there aren't any important issues that are discussed. I don't debate the importance of immigration reform, for example. I think that is a very important issue. It pales, however, as does everything else he talked about by uh, against the longer-term challenges before us and before this economy, and not only did he not talk about it a lot, but he was rather dismissive of it, saying, we've done most of the hard work on the long term. We've done two and a half trillion of the four trillion that people need. No, we have not. And he said, a deficit, deficit reduction is not an economic plan. That happens to be true, but he needed to expand on it. He sort of left it out there as a as a put down of the Republicans as though that's all they care about, which it is not. And here's a guy who has this chance, he's never going to have to run for office again, who can lead and guide and instruct on the big stuff as well as the small stuff. Matt, what do you think? Uh, so I guess, first of all, I wasn't surprised um, that in the second term that Obama uh, has sort of maintained his hardline approach. And I don't really fought him. I think that the well is now spoiled. But going back to 2008, and, you know, I hate to relitigate it, but I was surprised. Um, well, I, I actually I was pleased because I, as a conservative, I was actually very afraid that Barack Obama would um, pretend to be this postpartisan figure and that a lot of conservatives would be won over to him and that he could effectively just decimate uh, conservatism and the Republican Party um, by, by triangulating. I think the Republican Party was reeling, and I think he had this real opportunity to really transcend politics. And I, he chose to be a regular Democrat politician, and that's, that's fine. Um, it, it puts him 
it makes him human, like every other like every other politician, Republican and Democrat. Um, so I do think it was a, a huge opportunity uh, lost lost for him. Um, but since then, in the reelect, you know, I, I think that there's there's so much water under the bridge, and there's so much ill will and and bad faith at this point um, that you know I guess immigration reform is is kind of the one hope. That, that they may be able to work together and get something done. Otherwise, I don't see a lot getting done, and that really is the bottom line about the State of the Union. A lot of, a lot of pretty words, but I don't think, I, I doubt if anything happens with gun control, if anything, it'll, it'll be the background checks. They're not going to do, uh, they're not going to raise the minimum wage. Uh, it doesn't matter what we say or, or how much, you know, how many tongues we're wagging after that, that speech. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, this is the real world of, of presidential politics. He's got a limited amount of time uh, to get things done, and, and he'll be a land doc. Matt, but that, that brings up a good, a good point, though. You know, it's gotten to the point now where the American electorate is like the State of the Union, whereas in decades past actually meant something. It was a way to bring up a strong agenda. It just seems that the American public just kind of looks at it as, this is just politics as usual. It's nothing new. He didn't do anything that would have literally relit up the American electorate to say, oh, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, I think what happens is that, um, that well, and remember, you know, these things haven't always even been speeches, you know. Um, sometimes they were just letters. And so <laughs> that would never happen today because presidents would, would never sacrifice the opportunity to get the TV time. Um, and the publicity that comes with it. But I think that what happens is that politicians come up with a good idea and then they get recycled over and over. So, you know, Bill Clinton came up with this model where he essentially throws, you know, has a line for every coalition, every possible coalition, possible giveaways for everybody. Um, and, and it was probably a brilliant move when he did it, and it's just been recycled over and over. You know, Reagan came up with the thing where he would honor a hero, somebody, you know, in the balcony that would stand up uh, who did something heroic. Um, unfortunately, that idea has now metastasized to where we no longer have heroes. We mostly have victims. Um, and, and, and we're not celebrating, you know, heroism in America. We're making a political point, trying to push, push a, a political agenda. And so I think that, um, you know, it's almost like the slam dunk contest at the NBA All-Star break. I'd like to see us take a five-year break where we don't do State of the Union and then maybe maybe bring it back out. <laughs> Carl Tubin, you had a question. Yeah, I have uh, uh, not a question, but you, you had mentioned the fact that uh, <clears throat> you thought that maybe you would see after um, the president left, you know, that he, he reformed taxes and he talked about entitlements. He's going to talk about entitlements. He's going to get into entitlements, but he wants he wants other things to happen first. That's number one. Number two, he's got 47 months to go in his in his presidential term, and I think in those 47 months, you're going to see that he's going to he's going to try to get tax reform. Uh, if if the Republicans don't say, oh no, right now, well, we, you know, you want tax reform, we don't need tax reform. You might have that going on, but he'll get tax reform. The other uh, thing you made about uh, getting some conservatives to come over the side and 
he would ruin conservatism or end conservatism forever. I think the Republican Party is doing that on its own, and he doesn't have to help it. Matt? Okay, so a lot to chew off there. I agree the Republican Party is reeling. They're in disarray. Um, but I was it Earl Weaver who said momentum's tomorrow night's pitcher, meaning uh, the political version of that is, you know, it's entirely possible that in four years Republicans have the Senate, Marco Rubio's president, and Paul Ryan's the speaker. So as it, bleak as things look today, and they look very bleak, um, it, things, you know, fortunes can, can change very, very quickly. Um, I do want to say that I don't want to uh, fault Obama too much for being human. I mean, I think the problem is he ran with his hope and change, hope and change image, um, which implied that he would change the tone in Washington. Of course he didn't. It's just as partisan, just as bitter. But he's in good company. George W. Bush ran <laughs> promising to be a uniter, not a divider, and to change the tone of Washington. Um, and he was able to get along with Democrats in Texas and Austin, obviously couldn't do it here. So uh, it just means that Obama is human and he's a politician. He's not what uh, he's not. It's not open change. Um, I guess I'll stop there. <laughs> Congressman Al, you had a comment, though. Well, the idea that we're going to have who was president, did, did you say? And uh, Rubio. Rubio. Rubio was president and all these other things. You know, it, the Republican Party thought it was headed for a landslide election this time. I mean, uh, somebody is putting something in the water up at the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. So I think that's highly unlikely, uh, although devoutly, I'm sure, by you to be wished. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what Al just said, but it sounded really, really important. What, what I was going to say was... Was the history of I, I wanted to agree with Matt about taking a time out from from the State of the Union. The, the first two presidents, Washington and Adams, both spoke to the Congress. The Constitution requires from time to time messages. Jefferson said, "I'm not going to talk. I'm going to send it up in writing." And for the next hundred years, that worked. And then along came Woodrow Wilson about a hundred years ago and said, "No, I want to give a speech." So he started giving the occasional speech. It was FDR in the 30s who started speaking every year, and then as, as it has turned into a god-awful mess, and American people have stopped listening, stopped tuning in. We have all these human props. We have these phony standing ovations, except for the justices and the generals and, and the uh, ambassadors, and it's a joke, and the people have tuned it out. The, the viewership is down, down, and down, and we miss the opportunities to carry the big messages. I, I like Carl's uh, sort of faith that we will turn to the big stuff in 47 months. He's missed two big opportunities, and you don't get that many. And he missed it in the inauguration, in the inaugural address and in the State of the Union. I hope Carl's right, but I, it's hard to see uh, a path where that happens. Matt? Well, let me. I guess I'll, I'll address the, the comments about the Republican Party. Um, and yeah, they're, they are reeling. It, it's, it's amazing how bad they are. But I mean, it wasn't that long ago I heard Republicans talking about this permanent governing majority that they were going to have. And I just I think for, you know fortunes in politics can change very quickly. 
And I also think the one thing we don't know, we 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 know that Barack Obama wins. We know there's something special about him. We don't know if that's transferable. It could be that these trends, um, that the turnout numbers, uh, that that they that they continue um, with the next guy or gal in line. We don't know that. I mean, it could be that Barack Obama is inc- is is unique. That he's incredibly talented and charismatic. And the Republican bench, I think we have to say, is much, much stronger, whether it's Marco Rubio or Paul Ryan or Ted Cruz or Susana Martinez or Nikki Haley or Mike Pence. It's an embarrassment of riches. The Democrats are going to have to step, take a step back generationally. I think it's – I mean, I guess you have um, – uh, there are a couple people such as Cuomo and O'Malley, but – it seems like the front runners are, are Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. Hillary would obviously bring change, uh, be a historical vote because she's a woman. But generationally, you're, you're looking at a political party that's going to go in the opposite direction. Um, whereas I, I feel like America wanted to pass the torch to a new generation of leaders. So it, it would be very interesting. And I think that Republicans, right. you know, with Rubio and, and, and the rest, um, are going to be a lot tougher than people think. Right. Well, Matt, we're, we're coming up. We're coming up on the top of the hour. Uh, Matt, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. If you smoke cigars, we'd love to have you come sit in with us one week. I'm legally prohibited from going to bars. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, uh, Matt Lewis with the Daily Caller. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. You got it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Bye bye. Uh, we're going to go up on the break right now. When we come back. Joining us is former congressman from the great state of Minnesota, Mark Kennedy, now with George Washington University. We're going to be talking about the divisiveness in politics. If you want to join the conversation, you can call in 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live uh, on Blog Talk Radio. It's happy hour for us, so we are cutting open our cigars, ordering our drinks, and for the top of the hour for our happy hour interview, joining us now is former congressman from the great state of Minnesota, now with George Washington University, former congressman Mark Kennedy. Congressman, how are you doing, sir? Good to be with you. Sorry I'm not there uh, having a stogie with you. Well, you're always welcome to come down here and join us, Congressman. We'd we'll look forward to doing that. We'd love to have you sit in. Hey, uh, Congressman, real quick, um, you, you were talking yesterday on MSNBC uh, about some of the issues that are, that are facing us right now, namely you know, some of the big financial challenges and, most notably, 10 days from now, sequestration getting invoked. Uh, what's your thoughts on what's going on in the Hill and why is it that we just can't seem to get our political act in order when it comes to these issues? Well, it's a lot tougher to reduce spending or raise taxes than it is to do the other. And for the last several decades, we've been resolving partisan differences by just putting a little bit more money in, cutting a little more taxes to put together the coalition need need to move forward. Now the that that sort of story is over. Uh, we've hit a debt uh, level that is just really unsustainable, and we have to reverse and do what's unpopular. That in and of itself is hard, and perhaps as a part of that or contributing to making that difficult is the divisiveness between the two parties and, frankly, amongst the American people that is making reaching a positive conclusion extremely difficult. It would It would seem, though, Congressman, that you know, in this time of fiscal crisis, in this time of staring down the barrel of sequestration, in a time where our economy is fragile, you could argue recovery or not, that this would be the time that nonpartisanship or bipartisanship would be the call of the day instead of the political divisiveness that we're facing right now. You would you would think and you would hope and you would also think that you would try to apply some strategy uh, to this that was uh, trying to accomplish your goals, but not only do we have confrontation, but we have moves that have no basis in political strategy. And as the head of the of the Graduate School of Political Management, where we teach politics, not policy, but politics, it's frustrating to me to watch, for example, the Tea Party, forget whether you're for them or against them. Let's assume you're for them. If you're for them, they opposed Boehner when it came to the last debt ceiling face-off. And as a result of that, Boehner had to hand the ball over to the Senate, and they ended up getting more defense cuts than they would have otherwise had, something they're facing today. They opposed Boehner on a raise the taxes over a trillion, over a million, I mean, and uh, and ended up handing the ball to the Senate again and getting taxes raised on over 400000 So if your goal was to not raise taxes and not cut defense spending, they practiced politics in a way that did not accomplish their goals. So not only do we have people that are divisive, but they've turned off their thinking caps and not even applied a political uh, politics strategy that gets to their ends. So in that type of environment, it's very, very difficult to get anything done. Congressman now. Well, <clears throat> I, I think, uh, I think uh, the congressman is exactly uh, correct. Uh, it. It's always been interesting to me that the public tends to think that the only job for which you should hire people who don't have any experience is uh, Congress, 
mayor, you know, political jobs. You wouldn't hire somebody that knew nothing about roofing to roof your house, and you wouldn't certainly have uh, uh, somebody with no experience in medicine that operate on you. But we do like the idea that uh, we're going to elect somebody who doesn't know anything about politics. Uh, that idea is probably generated by the fact that politicians are there to form compromises. I mean, that's if you're going to have a nation of, uh, of, of people who have a right to believe anything they want and advocate anything they want and pursue anything they want, and they all don't agree, as they obviously will not, you, you, you have to have compromise. And this came with the, the Tea Party came with the idea that uh, you you got something done by not compromising, and they were they started out wrong to begin with. Uh, as a Democrat, I can tell you that uh, there there have been times when the Democrats had the problem. You go back uh, to uh, the mid '70s uh, when uh, we elected a whole bunch of. Uh, people uh, in, in the aftermath of the Nixon thing, and uh, some of them were very, very bright, very capable. A uh, few of them are left in the Congress, but they also were of a view that uh, I can remember one freshman getting up and twisting the tail of uh, a very senior member of the Appropriations Committee of his own party. And there was no reason for him to twist the tail, except he was an old horse, and uh, they, and he, they just felt that he, they needed to, to, to twist his tail. So it, the public doesn't understand how we do this, and whether that's something wrong in our educational system, or whether poor politicians have created that attitude, I don't know. Congressman. You know, I think I think it's very true that not only do we not uh, select people that understand politics, because indeed, it's policy differences. Should we cut spending or raise taxes? It's those policy differences that create the conflict. The only way to resolve them is politics, and we elect we we view politics as a bad word, as a negative word, and we want politicians that don't know that aren't political somehow, uh, which is mystifying. Uh, to me, but we need to have some way of bridging these differences and communicating uh, with the the people that we represent why they need to be. So this is a big issue. I think another thing that makes it very, very hard is that Republicans go to Washington with the idea, if we have nothing happen, that's good. There's all these people with these crazy liberal ideas, if we can just stop them, that's good. So they come there with they stop the liberals from doing bad things through government. But as it relates to two of the biggest issues that we face today, the deficit and immigration, doing nothing is the worst alternative. And so they have to change their complete way of thinking and saying, I, I don't like what's there, but to prevent the bad things that are already inflicted upon us with our debt and uh, millions of illegal people in this country, I have to do something in switching their mindset to that doing something as opposed to stopping bad things from happening is also a stumbling block in the way. Uh, well, Mark, this is Alan Moore. Um, reflecting on, on this question of the Tea Party uh, and its uh, 
its its influence, whether it's uh, increasing or waning. I think it's waning some, but it, but uh, but we've talked around this table oftentimes about how the the uh, the Tea Party is not exactly a monolith. It's uh, it's a lot of different things from different places, but but I'm reflecting here now on how it came to be that a group that we call the Tea Party, that a bunch of very conservative new people to the process might get themselves elected in big numbers and have some influence is because the economy went into the toilet just five years ago and it scared the, the, the hell out of everybody out there, rich and poor alike, and it was hard. It was it, the most convenient thing on that uh, about the the reason for that was to blame Washington, blame politicians who always want credit when things go good, and then always want to shift blame when things go bad. And you know, we say, "Gosh, can't these guys come together and come up with an agreement?" But the the, the forces that elected Tea Party members were, that's what's wrong. That's what got us into this mess. Now around this table. We have a little different view uh, about whether that's exactly what was wrong, but there can be no disagreement that federal policy that was developed in compromises by Republicans and Democrats with di multiple different presidents of both parties helped drive us into this ditch. And then I think that, that, that President Obama in his first couple of years, by trying to sort of have his cake and eat it too, meaning work on recovering the economy, but also try to claim that, that health care reform was really key, a key ingredient to all of this, it didn't add up. It didn't make sense to a lot of people, and that fed, I think, the, the political result two years later. But the, over, the, the, the overwhelming piece of it was loss and fear for the future, economically speaking. Congressman Kennedy. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And when you think about what brought the Tea Party to Washington, if there's a number of different variables, and they are very uh, mixed in terms of their ideologies. But the one thing that unites them is they're we're spending too much. The government budget is out of balance, and we need to balance it. So they have a fairly defined view of the economy, and it, it tends to be more uh, aligned with Hayek and Friedman than with uh, with Keynes, and and that's you know for uh, if my, if I, you were asking my personal views, I would I would agree with that. They also have a, a view as to the relationship between the government and the individual. But what we need to have is a governing view, a political view. A how do I enact that? How do I not just stamp my feet and shout and say it's a tragedy? It's a needs to be fixed, but how do we get to the end game and fix it? And that's the part we're missing. So I think we need to be helping and coaching and counseling and prodding people into the fact we need to do a big deal. The, the thing the president also doesn't really realize is he's trying to ignore it, the, the depth of uh, our fiscal challenge, and do it a half a trillion at a time when we really need to be doing, as Tom Friedman said in the New York Times, this last weekend, and as the Washington Post said this weekend, it needs to be more than a trillion and a half more. It needs to be bigger than that. And if the president keeps trying to do it a half a trillion here, a half a trillion there, as seems to be the case, it will preoccupy us and crowd out every other issue that he's hoping to do and accomplish and waste away 
the period of time in the second term when he has a chance to do something. So I don't really see either side playing good politics, whether it's Obama frittering away his uh, ability to make a uh, develop a legacy and get something done in the first year of a second term when it's the richest opportunity to do so, nor the the, the far right side of the Republican Party really trying to accomplish their aims, and both people playing bad politics as resulting in nothing getting done. Congressman Al, I think if you were to take a poll of everybody at this table, including including our guests, uh, that essentially we could agree on that. We would have little little things here and there that we disagree with. <clears throat> but the interesting thing to me is that we all can talk with each other. And one of the problems that, uh, that it's not the problem, it is one of the problems that is keeping uh, us from being able to move ahead is that congressmen don't know each other anymore. They don't uh, make friendships across the aisle. I had a friend uh, who was a Republican. He was the uh, ranking Republican on the Energy and Commerce Committee. He and I didn't agree on politics at all. We, we, we somehow grew a friendship, and uh, we kept that friendship going by not arguing politics when we were together. Uh, <clears throat> but what we did do was we grew to trust each other and hence, when it came to negotiating uh, a compromise, we, we had the first thing done. You could trust the other guy to do what he said. Uh, you, you could trust him to say, I can't do it, if he couldn't do it. Uh, and hence, you had a basis on which to move ahead. That has not totally disappeared on the Hill, but it is, it is a... a, a uh, 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 Is that too many cigars or too much uh, happy hour? <laughs> well, I'm known for happy hours. And, uh, <laughs> well, but but that's my point. Right. My point is that that's become a a dated memory in too many cases. And so that you can't sit in, it, for a Republican and a Democrat to sit down at the monocle these days uh, is going to cause all kinds of gossip going on in both caucuses. Well, that, know, bring, that brings that. up a good point, uh, Congressman Kenny. Uh, Congressman Al brings up a good point. It, it, how do you how do you explain the current venomous situation that we see in politics when a lot of your graduate students, uh, many of them may be history majors, political science majors where they see in our history, all the way up to Tip O'Neill, uh, Ronald Reagan, we saw it with, with Adams in the first Constitutional Congress. How do you explain to them that we've gone so far, and then all of a sudden a hard break, and it became almost uh, enemies? Well, you know, it's interesting because in our school, since we teach politics, we don't, we're policy agnostic. We're what I call full spectrum, because in many of the countries, it's more than two parties. And I tell them, keep touch with all your classmates so as they go as you all go off to your different sides of the aisle you know you at least have somebody to talk to on the other side but i think there's a couple things that have been serious contributors to it one has been the redistricting process clearly where we have more and more districts where they are more concerned with the primary than with the general one of it is the preoccupation with raising money 
which is making it harder to raise money so that so much of the members' time is spent raising money so they have less time to do things. Part of it is the fact that we've gotten these gift rules uh, so uh, restrictive that there's less opportunities to mingle because they're not going to be buying themselves a, a, a drink at the bar at the Monaco. But if some organization was hosting a reception or a dinner or a, a social event, they might sit down with someone else. Well, I, uh, so there, there's just really not that much face time with each other, as Congressman L. says. And, you know, foreign travel, which sometimes is demonized, is one of the few times when you have members of opposite parties spending meaningful time with one another and we need to be looking for promoting more and more of those social inter not social but interactions outside of debating policy get to get the media to understand what a really well organized congressional delegation uh trip is would be a big help uh because they all become junkets and uh i i did eight one per term. Uh, they were all led by John Dingle, and uh, he worked our butts off. Uh, and I would come back so pumped about what I had learned that that would be my service club speech for the next three months. Rather than run from it, I could use it positively. Uh, but you had, to, you had to do it with people of the other party with you traveling for that time. Absolutely. And and that was that was vital to the whole process. You don't you don't learn much from talking with people who agree with you. Bob Hines, you have a comment. Yes, uh, Congressman, you mentioned just uh, very briefly the way we redistrict. Uh, one of the things that we do when we talk to uh, college students uh, is we talk about the need to um, to change the system a little bit. Uh, the idea that your biggest problem, if you're a Democrat, your biggest problem in the pro is not the primary election. It's the, it's, the, it's the primary, not the general. Same with the Republicans. We have a situation where we have about 360 seats that are absolutely locked in because of the way the redistricting has been done. When you talk to your students, do you ever, do you ever raise any questions about changing the way we, we, we redistrict? It's like going to an Iowa model. Going to an Iowa model. I remember that in the 2000 and uh, 2000 election uh, in California, 53 congressional seats, not one of them changed party hands because of the way they've been redistricted. In Iowa, they have six seats, three of them changed hands, and they have an independent, you know, uh, group of members who are a, a former governor and state uh, Supreme Court justices who would draw the districts. Do you ever talk about those kinds of things in order to find a way to make a district, make the district allocations much more so that you have compact and contiguous districts, so you have you have multi views within a district, and so you can't be way on the left or way on the right and expect to be successful. Is, is something like that something you bring up in your students? Well, we bring it up, but in reality, it's not that our students can do much about it other than form an activist organization within each state pressing for a better model. But one of the research projects that I would like to do before we go through redistricting again is to rank all 50 states to figure out what are the variables that are more likely to lead towards general election being the concern of the candidate than primary election and rank the 50 states and say, here's the 10 best states. Here's the 10 worst states, and uh, 
have that out in time that somebody can begin a process of agitation in the states prior to next redistricting because this is baked for the next uh, uh, this t decade but we need to start on this now and start having groups in the worst egregious states California being one uh, although they've tried to make some progress on that uh, in, before the next census that's an excellent idea well Congressman one of the one of the things that we bring up quite a bit is that the issue of the 24-hour media cycle has almost created a a laziness amongst the electorate. It's easy for the electorate to get a 30-second soundbite off of CNN, MSNBC, or Fox than it is for them to actually do the research and get skin in the game when it comes to the issues about how they're governed. Is there some way to go to the 24-hour media cycle? Well, there's there's clearly the, not just the blame to the 24-hour media cycle, but the degree to which media has become horizontal. When I grew up in northern Minnesota, we only had one TV station, NBC. Now, I know that you that lived in the lap of luxury probably had three, but uh, everybody had sort of a common reference point. Now it's not so bad that they're getting their information from NBC, CNN, or Fox, but it's the or. They should be getting and and listening to both sides. And what I uh, advise, I, I show a, a picture in my, I, I teach with picture, I show a picture of Politico news dispenser and the China Daily news dispenser. And I offer extra credit to anybody that can bring uh, something from the front page of China Daily that says anything bad about the Chinese government or anything on the front page of the Politico that says anything good about the American government. And haven't had to give any extra credit yet, but my point is saying, <laughs> my point is saying, each media publication has a bias. You ought to be reading both the Wall Street Journal's editorial page and the New York Times editorial page, understanding both sides so that you can make an intelligent view. Carl Tubin. You know, I I have a lot of respect for uh, for your uh, uh, group. Um, Chuck Bennett was a very close friend of mine. I stopped by uh, yesterday in the lobby and, and saw the uh, exhibit uh, that features Chuck and uh, Frank Frankoff and what they did uh, to do the international thing, et cetera. And I, I wonder whether <clears throat> some of your people could look into this fact of how Congress has changed, how they used to all congregate together, take trips together, talk together, and in and, and some way how can we bring that back? And how can we present something to the Speaker and to uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, to the leaders in the House and uh, in the Senate to to try to get some of the to reinvigorate some of this conversation uh, in spite of the uh, the uh, fractures in, in both parties? You're absolutely right, and we've dedicated ourselves to that mission, both not only to train our own students but to do research to figure out how we can bring it into the electoral process to Congress. Because Chuck Manad and Frank Farncroft, who you mentioned, we have a display in our building. They were chairs of our board here at the Graduate School of Political Management, but they worked together as the chairman of the Republican Party and the chairman of the Democratic Party to get a lot of good things going, including the National Endowment for Democracy. So it's that spirit we need to pass on. Uh, Congressman, uh, we, we've got about a minute left in the segment. Can, can we ask you to stick around for another segment? Unfortunately, I got a, a teaching uh, assignment coming up here, but uh, 
I will look forward to another opportunity when I can be there in the chair with you guys and uh, have a beverage. Uh, Congressman, the uh, cigar's on us when you come down here. We'd love to have you again. Uh, joining us, Congressman uh, Mark Kennedy from the great state of Minnesota and now with George Washington University's uh, political science or politics department in the graduate studies program. Congressman, again, thanks a lot for joining us. We look forward to having you back here soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a great one. When we come back, we're going to talk about the filibuster and Chuck Hagel and how you get a Secretary of Defense through a really venomous political process. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, Seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. As we go into our final segment, we're going to talk about uh, the idea of the filibuster and Chuck Hagel. Uh, last week, the Senate confirmed the former senator from Nebraska, Chuck Hagel, to become the next Secretary of Defense, uh, succeeding the very successful and very well-respected Leon Panetta. Uh, however, it was not without some drama, including a filibuster led by several Republicans, key Republicans in the Senate, uh, which brings up the question. Number one, we brought up the filibuster, and it was during a time that the filibuster question was being discussed is, should we change the rules of the filibuster? Bob Hines, this is something that you've talked about many times. Uh, when you look at what happened in the quote-unquote filibuster on the Chuck Hagel nomination, was that a wake-up call for us to say, you know what, maybe we do need to change? We have to go back to the old Capra-esque days of standing in the in the well, talking for 24 hours? Well, it seems to me the filibuster has been around in the Senate for one heck of a long time. And... I don't think there's, and, and Alan knows a lot more about this than I do, being a Senate guy. It seems to me that the, it's reasonable to have a filibuster's structure. However, it's been so perverted today that all you have to do is say, I'm going to filibuster, and everybody says, okay, we give up. We've got a caller on the line. Caller from the 267, you're on with Backroom Politics. Uh, hi, this is Brian Collin. Hi, what's your question? Uh, I just had a comment to make. I mean, to me, the um, the whole issue with the filibuster and the Hagel nomination just illustrates to me that the um, the Republican Party hasn't changed at all in foreign policy, and uh, it really disappoints me um, that that they they basically have been trying to outhawk the Democrats and Obama, even though Obama has been a bigger war hawk than George Bush. It's one of the reasons why I um, left the Republican Party years ago and have been been an independent for the last six years and and very fed up with both of the parties. I mean, you'd think that um, with all the wars we've been involved in and mired in and how unsuccessful it's been, that um, the last thing you'd want to do is um, try to hold up the nomination of a def- somebody for defense secretary who largely voted for all the um, military actions that Bush went with and really only had a few minor criticisms of what the Republicans have been doing. It's a good question. Alan Moore. Well, First of all, I reject the notion that this was a real filibuster. This was what I call a faux filibuster. Um, There were several people who said, we need some more information, and we are not going to participate in holding this thing up. It was Harry Reid, the majority leader, who insisted on moving forward. They wanted the issue of being able to accuse the Republicans of of a real filibuster more than they wanted to sort of pursue regular order, wait 10 days, have the vote. We know that in 10 days we're going to have the vote. We know that several people who voted again, who who said we're not ready to vote yet, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham and others, have said we'll be ready to go in 10 days unless something else shows up. So it, it was. This was not. This is not the issue around which to talk meaningfully about the filibuster because this wasn't one. This was a faux filibuster, a fake one. And, and I need to clarify one thing. Uh, in my comments earlier, it was the Senate committee that voted to put it onto the floor. They still have yet to vote 
on Chuck Hagel, which they all do after this recess. But that being the case, uh, call, caller, are, are you looking to possibly revamp the filibuster, do away with it, or make it back to the old days of standing in the well for 24 hours? Um. I, mean, I don't really have any strong opinion on it because, um, I mean, a lot of the issues that are being filibustered, I mean, I, I just I don't think that that's the biggest problem we have. I think in the grand scheme of things, and this is my opinion, it's on the list of things I'm concerned, it's way down on the list. I just think the, 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 the comments that, that I've been hearing from people like Lindsey Graham and John McCain and other Republicans just indicate that there's still not a strong anti-war voice within the party, and you'd hope that you'd have diverse voices in the party, especially considering how long we've been overseas in the Middle East and the results. And that's been my criticism. No, I didn't think there was going to be a real filibuster, as your guest is saying, but my issue has been uh, that the attacks on Hegel, when largely he's been a hawk himself, it just indicates to me that there's still not a strong anti-war voice. Uh, and not only, in the, not only in the Republican Party, but also in the Democratic Party. And that really disappoints me. Appreciate your call. Please keep and uh, listen to us. Appreciate your call today, caller. Um, the call brings up some, several good points. Uh, you know, when we look at Chuck Hagel, Chuck Hagel isn't exactly the biggest dub on the Hill Congress for now. No, he's, no, he's not. Uh, I don't... I, I can understand why somebody would reasonably want to know a little bit more about what his qualifications are. Uh, for this specific job. I'm a little surprised that those particular senators, having worked with him for a while, don't have that information, but if they want some more, uh, give it to them, if, if, as long as, as, as Harry Reid can be convinced they weren't just being uh, dilatory. But the filibuster itself is the issue. Now, I'm, I'm a guy who would totally abolish the filibuster. That ain't going to happen. So let's go back and think about what is democracy. Democracy is, at some point, the majority get to act and have their way done. And so I think there are all kinds of ways, and there used to be all kinds of ways, that you could have the filibuster, but you could still finally drive it to a vote that a majority would win. And that's the reform that needs to be done. Alan Moore, you're a longtime Senate staffer. You know about this subject. Well, I would say two things. One, this, this notion of the, quote, majority. So Al believes that 26 states, 52, 51 senators, should be able to have their way. Now, if you take the smallest 26 states and look at their total population, I wonder what percentage of the population you'd have. Well, I happen to know. You would have 17% of the population, less than you have in California and Florida. That is the majority in the Senate that Al wants to empower to do anything it wants. But that comes from now. Cited by the people who drew things up originally. That's what the House is for. Precisely. Precisely, but you're saying you think that a majority of, of, of the Senate should be able to have its way, and I'm simply saying that that's a different kind of majority. The, the Constitution was set up very differently, and in the old days, there was 
no, there was no way to close off debate. People would talk until the end of the session, and then they created this cloture process. That was a long, long time ago. It is a mess now, but I am very encouraged by the deal that Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell struck. It rem we'll, we'll watch over the course of this Congress, because it's a one-Congress deal. We'll see how it works. There's two sides to this filibuster business, and the majority can abuse the process just as the minority can. Congressman Al? The whole idea is that a filibuster is inherently anti-democratic. I mean, small d democratic. If you're going to have to put up with it, then you should at least make it so that it can be in some way driven finally to a judgment by the majority. And the founding fathers set the uh, the Senate up the way they did, giving giving small states more input for a reason. And they created the House so that that would counterbalance that reason. And so I still argue that the uh, that, 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 that we should be able to drive a majority vote in the Senate in some fashion over time. The old days when they pulled out the cots and people had to, senators had to sleep in the in the and, 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 you know, until somebody got tired of talking and then they could vote I think it's stupid but if they want to do that that gets me where I want to go that the Senate can ultimately vote Alan Moore you look like you're about ready to oh no 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 I'm just saying that option is available every time and it's available to the majority leader he's the one who has to decide whether to keep people in, keep them up all night, keep them talking. They choose not to do that for two reasons. One, as Al said, it makes them look like idiots to the world. And two, because when you keep people up all night and wake them up constantly, it's very hard on old guys. Now, and, and, and the, the people laugh. Are you talking about old guys like Al? No, I'm, because Al's not in the Senate, but there are some old guys in the Senate. <laughs> Only because I'm not in the Senate. There, there are some old guys in the Senate, and I can assure you that they don't want to put people's health in jeopardy, but mostly it makes them look like idiots. There's nothing grand and glorious, um, uh, all of Jimmy Stewart, in just having people blab and blab and talk and talk and then be constantly interrupted after show up to, to take a vote. And that's what happens. And you don't think the current system makes them look like idiots? I, it doesn't make them look nearly as stupid because it's invisible. If you put them out there all night and make a vote. As long as you don't mind looking like an idiot, as long as nobody knows that well, you I'm, look like an I'm, idiot, it's all right. I'm explaining why they don't do it, why Harry Reid doesn't keep people uh, there all night, which he can do anytime he wants. I'm not saying it's a great idea or a great system, but that's the reason. It's a the, terrible idea. It, it, the, 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 it's available to him anytime he wants. He can force people to stay and stay and stay and stay. Interesting. Carl Tuvin. The thing that really got me on, on this one is, you know, first of all, um, they wanted Chuck Hagel um, confirmed because he had a he had a NATO ship that he would have gone on uh, to meet with other uh, of his kind, other ministers, etc. in Europe. That's number one. Number two, uh, right after this whole thing is 
gone, you know, Senator McCain gets on TV and says, well, we're going to do this when we get back. So, you know, when they, they wanted seven years of records from uh, former Senator Hagel. They only wanted one year of records from Mitt Romney when he was uh, running for president. Uh, you know, it, it, this whole thing seemed to me to be uh, ridiculous and, and, and a real show by by somebody. Uh, <laughs> looked foolish. I'm, Alan, Alan Moore. I'm, I'm a little confused when Carl said they only wanted one year. I remember uh, a lot of money being spent saying, what are you hiding, Mitt Romney? Give us more years. Give us more years. That was what the Democrats were demanding and insisting and running ad after ad on. But that's not my issue with, with, with Chuck Hagel. It... it, it it, it's a reminder to me of what a bad idea it is for members of presidents of one party to try to pull in a token member of another party into his cabinet. Occasionally it works without a lot of disruption, but not only does it feed this kind of a problem, but it, it breeds a lot of resentment among Democrats saying, Wait, the best we could do is this guy who's a Republican who the Republicans hate, who can't defend himself in a hearing. We couldn't come up with a Democrat who could have done better than that? Congressman now. Who? Senator Cohen from Maine, who was a Republican, was uh, a, a Secretary of Defense under a Democrat, and uh, the Democrats didn't have any trouble with it. Well, and we can argue about how good a, how, how good a one he was. All I'm saying is that... When you win the presidency, you get to pick your people. And it infuriates a lot of Democrats when they say, oh, we're going to give a couple of these plum jobs to members of the other party in some crazy notion that it's going to be helpful. Those Democrats, and those Democrats are idiots. I think that, that I was saddened to know that the Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood. Ray LaHood was deciding to retire. He was a terrific Secretary of Transportation. He was a good Republican and conservative. His his uh, his uh, the job he was supposed to do at, in in transportation was not one that was going to bring in a large. Uh, Large following. A large partisan set of issues. Right. And, and so he did the job well, and if there were Democrats who had problems with it, I would tell them to their face they were foolish, and, and he, should, he should have been, I, I wish he'd stayed. Actually, I, w I want to jump in on something, though, and I'm going to, I can't believe I'm going to do this, I'm going to back up Congressman Allen on this. I mean, the idea of picking who you want, if that is the right of the president. We'll give you that. <coughs> However, when you look at saying we're going to set aside, it, 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 this is not an equal opportunity issue. The president has the right to pick who he thinks best to serve in this in this in this role. In the in the uh, in the role of Secretary of Defense, having somebody who came from the trenches, who was an enlisted person, who worked his way up to now being nominated to the top post in the Department of Defense, he has a new perspective. He has a perspective that the president feels would be in the best interest of DOD and the nation. 
you don't agree with that. No, I don't. He obviously Obama and Hegel like each other. They've traveled together. But isn't he that has what we some, just talked he about? He has though? some respect for Hegel. No one disagrees. I don't. I'm a big defender of giving giving a lot of deference to a president. The Senate does have a role under the Constitution to advise and consent. It doesn't mean it just rubber stamps. But but you give a lot of deference for for executive branch appointees. They're 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 temporary. They're serving at the pleasure of the president. I'm only saying that in my experience and my observation over 40 years, it usually is the case that this effort to reach across the aisle, have an affirmative action program in your cabinet towards the other party, is a by and large a waste of time that that doesn't help you the way you think wait, it does. Wait, 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 when you say when you say this affirmative action for the other party, you I mean you're talking about something. I mean George W. Bush picked Norman Netta as Secretary of Transportation, yep. and let's not downgrade the Secretary of Transportation. This is a seated member of the president's cabinet. Correct. Mineta wasn't the token Democrat that says, well, if I give him transportation, it won't matter. Mineta put out some very staunch, if you will, conservative ideals for the Department of Transportation under his tenure, just as Ray LaHood putting in some infrastructure and spending a Democratic ideal. As a Republican, he has done his job as a member of the cabinet. I'm not knocking those guys. I'm knocking the idea from the White House that you should take this of this small group of cabinet level jobs and hand one over to the other party. I just think it's a bad idea. Are you, say, are you saying concept. that the, are you saying that you know the White House, the president, chief of staff, and his advisors are sitting around going? Who do we throw a token cabinet level? If they were going to do that, they would have made him SBA. I, no, no, no. I think they say, wouldn't it be nice to continue to have a Republican in the cabinet? And where should it be? And who should be at DOD? And I like Chuck Hagel. And let's put Hagel in because probably he'll not have a lot of trouble getting through. Well, that was a misread. No, I just, it, it, it's not about Hagel. It's not about LaHood. It's not about Manetta. It's not about Bill Cohen. It's about this idea that that what, get, save it for your winning side, these few plums that you have, you surely can come up with, if you're a Republican, good Republicans for your cabinet, and Democrats, good Democrats. And, and, and I think that that's the smarter way to go. But doesn't that just divide the parties even more? The, the parties are totally divided. Bringing Ray LaHood into the cabinet didn't make it a kumbaya Republican Democratic environment. But it made, the it made it a table. lot easier for Ray LaHood to sell some of the transportation programs. I don't know on that that's true. I don't know that that's did. true at all. Of course it did. If Ray LaHood, maybe you would like to give me an example. Let's talk about the tiger spending. Let's an talk about of what? No, of how, of, of how is, LaHood works some magic. Let's talk about the let's talk about let's talk about the tiger program spending. That spending went to a lot of transportation programs. He's got to go up on the hill and say, give me the money. It's going to be easier for him to go to a Republican that he's worked with in the in the in Congress and say, by the way, look, I get what you're saying. This is a good idea. Your, He's got credibility in the party. By your theory, the Democrats should fill his cabinet with Republicans. No, 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 no. 
Bob Hines, help me out here. Uh, the bottom line is the president gets to pick his cabinet. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that, that uh, hey, I don't know enough about Mr. Hagel to know whether he's going to be great, bad, or indifferent. But I do know that the president has a right to make that choice. He won the election. I'm unhappy that he won the election. I have no idea who Mr. Uh, Mr. Romney. Mr. Romney would have chosen to be his Secretary of Defense. But the President has a right to make his choice. Now, if, unless, unless the President, unless you discover that the President, there's something that comes up that says this person is not qualified, that's a different question. I don't think anybody can say that Mr. Hagel is not qualified. Now he may have views you don't like, but that's not being dis that should not disqualify. But I I, and I think I think absolutely that you know I'm not sure that you know Hagel would have been chosen by a Republican president, but that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. The, I man, agree. the man is qualified to do the job. This could be the pre the president's ability to pick his cabinet the way he sees fit isn't isn't affirmative action for party politics. It is the most nonpartisan thing he could possibly oh, do. Oh, you are so naive. There's all sorts of partisanship involved in putting a cabinet together. On the face of it, including the, the diversity issue, which he has taken a lot of criticism for, and they've said, oh, just keep watching, just keep watching. Look, I don't have a quarrel with him picking Chuck Hagel. I just think it's a bad idea, given the few number of jobs there are, to go outside the party. Why tick off your well, you own make party? It sound, but wait a minute, Alan, you make it sound like the Secretary of Defense is a de facto Republican slot, whether you're a Democratic no, or Republican I president. I don't say that at all. I, I would say that about every single cabinet job. Does Kennedy, Why pick, go out the party? Does Kennedy pick McNamara if he's a Republican? I don't even... If McNamara is a Republican, Kennedy picked McNamara According to Kennedy, uh, uh, Kennedy or uh, Kennedy followers, he picked McNamara because he was exactly what the president needed at that time. We were staring down Cold War. We were staring down tensions. We were staring down Cuba. He had a diplomatic process about him to really work DOD as part of the full, the full I, diplomatic. Structure. I don't recall whether McNamara was a Republican or not. He was. He was a Democrat. So does, does Kennedy, if he's a Republican, does he not pick correct. McNamara? He, absolutely not. Why? Well, first of all, McNamara didn't exactly stand out as the greatest secretary ever. You look at your party. Well, wait a you minute. share the bounty of victory. We got four minutes left. Wait, we got four minutes left. Let's put this out there. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to get to. We're not going to get to tell me a story. But we'll close it out. But Bob Hines. Whether he's good, bad, or indifferent, that's the that's a mistake of the president. If he's not qualified or not talented enough to do it, but the fact of the matter is, he's got the right to pick who he wants to pick. I agree. Here's a fact: Alan is wrong. What? <laughs> you can't just say that. <laughs> On that note, you can't just say that, my God. You know what? He, he, that's what Alan realizes that he's sitting here and everybody's. Disagreeing with my view, so he thinks that becomes a fact. <laughs> I'm the only one who's right. And guess what? And guess what? 
as, as moderator, as moderator, I get to make the statement. You're wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately, my first of all, my my deepest apologies to Dr. Ralph Winnie, our international affairs expert, uh, who's been waiting patiently. We, we want to bring him in on this discussion. We kind of went on another track, Ralph. I apologize. Uh, we'll have you back, obviously. Uh, but on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, uh, the wrong <laughs> Undersecretary of Commerce, Helen Moore, and, oh, by the way, Carl Tubin's here. He's, he's wrong, too. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, across from our nation's center of power, the White House, where I can pick a Republican opponent in that residence. So he's back from 1331 Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The case to be. The case to be. Always come to Shelley. Exactly. It's the best place that you can possibly be in Washington to hear a crazy bunch of people like us. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the best political radio show you've never heard of. Backroom Politics. We'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.